Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. Are you worried about democracy? I have to confess, I am a bit worried about democracy. That's why I listen to a wonderful podcast called Democracy Works. It's run by the fabulous people at the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University. The podcast aims to rise above partisan politics and the daily news grind to take a broader look at issues impacting democracy. These are things we cannot ignore. You can go to www.democracyworkspodcast.com and subscribe in all kinds of ways. Or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and many other places. We really love this podcast at the NBN and so much so that we are going to provide you with a little taste of what you can get at Democracy Works. I hope you enjoy the following episode. From the McCourty Institute for Democracy on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam, and this is Democracy Works. And today, uh, Michael, we have the privilege of uh, talking to uh, Norman Eisen. Uh, Norm has a uh, distinguished career in politics, uh, uh, working for the Obama White House and then serving as ambassador to the Czech Republic. Um, and he is the author of a, uh, of a really interesting book, uh, uh, called The Last Palace, Europe's Turbulent Century in Five Lives and One Legendary House. And, and probably better known to or, or also well known to many Americans as a, a CNN contributor mm-hmm. and often on TV and uh, in the media uh, because of his leadership of uh, the Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. Uh, Norm Eisen was... Uh, in charge of ethics with the Obama White right. House, called right? the ethics czar, yeah, uh, and has been uh, quite spoken, quite outspoken uh, in terms of uh, ethics issues with the uh, current administration. Yeah, and and so it's it's surprising to see this book because it really is a very personal uh, and a very historical. Uh, accounting of um, the place where the U.S. ambassador to the Czech Republic lives. It's called the, the Petchek Palace. And um, it, 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 he really talks about that uh, residence from, both, from the time it's constructed at the end of the, uh, World War I until now and just all the history that has that it's lived through, that it's seen in its, in its walls. And uh, it, it's in some ways, it's not at all what you expect, and yet at the same time, it really is kind of a metaphor for uh, Eisen's view about democracy and about uh, the world we're living in today. Well, it's a story about liberal democracy mm-hmm. told told through the Czech Republic right. and, and told through the people that have occupied that house. Uh, and it, it's not hard for me to see how uh, Norm Eisen's concerns about ethics and corruption in government tie in 
with his uh, love for liberal democracy. Right. It, it begins with him telling his mother that he's going to be the next ambassador to, to the Czech Republic. And of, of course, his mother, when when she was in the Czech, was mm-hmm. in then Czechoslovakia, uh, was sent to Auschwitz. Right. And, and survived. Right. But it, it's really quite a story. And, and uh, throughout the book, uh, his mother kind of is, appears as kind of the the pessimistic yin to his optimistic yang. And so they have these very interesting and very uh, lovely conversations, to, you know, to kind well, of... that's like us. I'm yeah. the optimist and you're the pessimist. So there's this long history of, of, of Norm Eisen as, a, as a, a political figure, as a, as a writer, and as a, uh, an advocate for ethics. So uh, Norm Eisen right now is... Uh in the news quite a bit himself, not only as a spokesperson, but because he's leading a lawsuit uh, against, uh, against Donald Trump and his family. I'm not exactly sure how it's, uh, well, it have to be against Donald Trump, mm-hmm. about the emoluments clause. I mean, so can you say something about that? It's, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very archa- archaic word. Yeah, well, frankly, before, but before the, uh, the Trump Hotel in Washington, D.C., at Mar-a-Lago, I don't think anybody even knew what the emoluments clause was. Oh, it's never come up. Basically, it prohibits the federal government from granting titles of nobility and restricts members of the government from receiving gifts, emoluments, offices, or titles from foreign states without the consent of Congress. So essentially what it, what it does is to, is to say that anybody working within government can't make a profit from foreign, from, from a foreign government. Or even, While they're in office. Or, or even um, entanglements such that would um, allow for the, the possibility of corruption or to allow for the the appearance well that of, i think was a lot of what the framers had in mind i think actually, so. is that yeah. they 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 thought this would uh would in effect prevent even the appearance mm-hmm. of uh, a conflict of interest right. and they were concerned about the ideas of mm-hmm. conflicts of interest it's important in a democracy that when you elect somebody you know that they're working for you mm-hmm. and not not in order to to uh to profit themselves right uh, a topic I, I'm sure Jenna will get to in the in the interview. So maybe now is actually a good time to uh, turn to Jenna and her interview with uh, Norm Eisen. Jenna. So this is Jenna Spinelli here today with Norm Eisen. Norm, thank you for joining us on Democracy Works. Uh, Jenna, I'm so delighted to be with you and your co-hosts. <laughs> so um, you know there are. A lot of things um, that you know, could have been written, given your your background in in ethics and corruption, and you know some some of the work that you've done. Certainly, no shortage of of things to to write about in those areas these days. Um, I, I'm curious to to start. What why did you want to tell the story that you tell in the Last Palace about the ambassador's residence? Uh, well, um, I suppose that there were multiple uh, objectives in wanting to tell that story. The first was that when I was ambassador in Prague, even before I got to Prague, when I was a nominee, I heard so many incredible tales about the legendary ambassadorial residence, uh, one of the nicest in the world, the Villa Petchek. And um, I, I, I continued to collect those stories even when I was there. And so uh, I, I thought people would enjoy them. That was at a human level and the people who preceded me. But I also uh, came to believe that there was a, uh, 
came to believe that there was a larger story that was being told, not just about these people or this house, but the story of democracy over the past hundred years since Wilson uh, <clears throat> helped uh, Europe uh, end World War One and set up the idea of democracy that has come to dominate the globe in this century together with his European partners. So I wanted to tell that story as well. So it's really the story of five people, an incredible house, and uh, of uh, the uh, transatlantic democracy itself in the past hundred years. Yeah, and, and to that point on, on democracy, there is a, a quote on, on the back of the book that describes it as a love letter to liberal democracy. Uh, was that your, your intention going <laughs> Well, uh, you know, I I have to admit that I I didn't um, realize uh, the tale of democracy that would emerge uh, with quite the uh, bold, uh, highlighted font uh, when I started researching the stories of these people. But boy, it sure jumped out. So uh, certainly by the time I sealed and mailed the manuscript, yes, I intended it to be a love letter to democracy. And, and so you, you also talk in the book about kind of cycles of, of democracy that have kind of ebbed and flowed over time. I'm, I'm curious where you, you think we are in, in one of those cycles today. Uh, well, uh, we're at a, uh, 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 an inflection point. Um, there have been three great, on both sides of the Atlantic, three great surges uh, of democracy in the past century. One was uh, the post-World War I, 1918 uh, boom that um, uh, included the founding of the League of Nations, the founding of uh, the country of Czechoslovakia, where the book, uh, the book is set later to evolve into the Czech Republic. Uh, the second big boom was after World War II, uh, when the modern uh, security structure of uh, NATO was established, uh, securing Western Europe, uh, setting up the transatlantic alliance, formally binding the United States by treaty obligations to defend Western Europe and vice versa. And the third was the uh, post-Cold War, post-1989 era, and that was... Uh, 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 when these ideas uh, swept through Central and Eastern Europe, and even, we hoped, into Russia. Uh, of course, the mistake that we made was more like the post-1918 generation and less like the Marshall Plan uh, that helped uh, 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 secure democracy in the West after World War II, we didn't do a Marshall Plan for Central and Eastern Europe. We did some transitional help. And then the United States looked away. And one of the tales of this century is when the United States looks away, trouble brews. And that's where we are now in the form of uh, Mr. Putin leading an illiberal uh, uh, counterattack across Europe. And it's even hit our shores in the form of his and Russia's assault on our democracy in 2016. It's given us his partner, Donald Trump. Sure. 
So your your book kind of tells tells the story of the the, the diplomats and the ambassadors who have lived in the the Petschek Palace. What what can we take from them? What lessons can we learn from, from their experiences about to kind of deal with where we are today? Uh, well, um, one lesson is uh, that uh, democracy has endured far greater challenges, triumphed uh, against far larger obstacles than we face today. So there is somewhat of a lesson of perspective and of optimism. Uh, but uh, a second important takeaway Hi. is that we can't uh, assume that that will happen on its own. That if you study the ups and downs of the past hundred years, it makes all the difference when uh, the friends of democracy fight for democracy. And so um, each one of my characters, even the German Wehrmacht general, uh, whose uh, history I recount, uh, in their own way uh, fought for democracy. I write about the way that this general, Toussaint was his name, tried to make common cause with Patton at the end of the war and turned on the SS uh, out of, uh, I argue, he was transformed by living in this magnificent house that exemplifies, was intended to be a tribute to democracy. Uh, so you, we, we all need to uh, try to fight that good fight if we want uh, democracy to succeed. Sure. And so coming back to something you said earlier about we, we, we have overcome greater challenges than, than the one that we, we are currently facing in, in our democracy. But I'm wondering if our ability to combat the challenge today is, is perhaps in somehow, somehow weaker. We, we don't have quite, quite the capacity that maybe previous generations did to you know fight fight back against these forces pushing against democracy given polarization and and the lack of shared understanding of of information and frag, fragmented news media those those sorts of things well i think all of those same tools also uh, give us more capacity to fight for democracy uh you know in the dark uh, days uh, after uh, trump uh took office when he uh, launched a patently unconstitutional Muslim ban, when he was accepting foreign government payments in violation of the prohibition on them in the Constitution, they're called emoluments, when he was engaged in so much other misconduct. Those same social media tools that proved so devastating in uh, the 2016 election. So as you say, so fragmenting, so polarizing, uh, served as a vehicle to bring people together. Uh, hopefully we're seeing some accountability and oversight returning to at least one house of Congress after the midterms. It's not a partisan statement, it's a desire to have those of whatever party who are willing to do what Congress has not done, true oversight. I think people will look back and say, well, this polarization was overcome by a sense of cohesion um, uh, 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 using those same tools. So um, I don't think our situation, our polarization is no worse than it was after the uh, Civil War. Um, uh, uh, it's less bad. Um, you know, we, we need to use the tools that we have to address it. 
Um, switching gears a little bit, I, I, I want to talk about the role that ambassadors play more broadly. We, we talk a lot about this show about uh, on this show about people who are out there doing the hard work of democracy, and it, it, it strikes me that ambassadors would certainly fit into that group doing that work on an international scale. Um, but as, as I'm sure you you are are well aware that the Trump administration has scores of ambassador positions around the world that are currently unfilled. Um, what what's the impact of, of that on that kind of you know work of, of, of democracy that ambassadors do? Uh, well, um, it is a problem that this administration has been so disorganized and incompetent that they have not even sent names up for many of the most important and sensitive ambassadorships around the world. Um, uh, And that does cause a democracy deficit because uh, in, in, I know this from doing it myself, it's not always the big things that an ambassador does, uh, but the day in and day out work uh, that having a chief of mission who's been confirmed by the Senate can perform in foreign capitals all over the planet is so important to spreading democracy. Being there to speak up for our Western, uh, uh, this uh, Wilsonian, I should say, this Wilsonian idea of post-1918 uh, that that uh, America has so vigorously advanced through Three wars, I would contend, World War I, World War II, and the Cold War. Uh, partnering with like-minded individuals, um, working with civil society, defending minorities, free speech, free enterprise, all of the freedoms that constitute the liberal democratic project. Uh, you need ambassadors uh, to do that in our capitals around the world, and the gap that Trump has left creates a democracy gap as well. What do you see as the, the kind of uh, relationship between um, authoritarianism and and corruption, um, and and how does that impact uh, democracy? Uh, well, um, it is a problem <laughs> that uh, authoritarians, including our own president, um, always seem as part of their a mix of uh, of of illiberal of anti democratic behaviors to try to get a hold of the the public's purse and to take a little extra for themselves personally and uh, we've seen that with Mr. Putin, who some say has become the world's richest man through his corruption uh, and we've seen it with others. Uh, Viktor Orban, for example, is crony capitalism in Hungary. And we've seen it with President Trump, uh, who has um, uh, um, himself tried to benefit and his family uh, and those around him benefiting. Uh, and, uh, you know, that is a sign of autocracy and uh, uh, not a good thing. Right, yeah, and, and can you talk a little bit more about what what that that work looks like? Uh, well, I I think that our um, legal system uh, uh, is doing a good job um, of uh, of keeping up. Uh, look, it, it, you do you know we're doing the first um, ever in the history of America uh, 
a case uh, in which a judge has found that uh, there's a cause of action under the Constitution for accepting these um, forbidden uh, government uh, cash uh, and other benefits. Um, that's in one of these emoluments cases in Maryland. Of course, when a judge is making a decision for the first time in history, it's going to take a while. It took us over a year to get here. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, that's in order that there's been a lot of press coverage of that. That has, uh, in turn, helped set a climate where uh, the public and uh, others have kept an eye on these issues. Uh, so uh, uh, the big example of this, though, is the Mueller investigation has also taken over a year extraordinary results with uh, guilty pleas um, and uh, charges. Uh, uh, over 191 counts have been pled, significant guilty pleas by the president's former campaign chair, Mr. Manafort, his former national security advisor, General Flynn, uh, and now uh, reports that a, uh, the special counsel is going to issue his findings on whether the president obstructed justice. I think there's substantial evidence of that. So, um, uh, and people have paid attention to that. And I think that's a part of the public hesitation about Mr. Trump, his historically low approval ratings. He's said to be very frustrated about that, but he only has himself to blame. So I think the rule of law system uh, is working as it should. And, you know, we need to be a little patient with it. To uh, to bring things uh, back around to, to the book, um, I think it's, it's clear from, from reading it that you have an optimistic point of view while your mother uh, maybe has a more pessimistic view of things. <laughs> Indeed. Um, do you think that um, democracy functions better when both of those points of view are, are represented? They're not necessarily incompatible. One needs to be acutely aware of the challenges to democracy. If I would argue if we'd been a little more pessimistic, I'm a congenital optimist like you, but perhaps if we'd been a little more pessimistic, we would have invested better and done a Marshall Plan for Central and Eastern Europe after the end of the Cold War. So there's a role for seeing the challenges. But then we have to, at the same time, honestly look at the fact that we've overcome far more profound difficulties um, in transatlantic democracy over the past century. And we have to take that strength of democracy into account, too. So it all fits in in a uh, nuanced uh, view. And I try to fairly present uh, both sides of the debate. Is the glass half full? Is the glass half empty? The yin and the yang. Uh, I try to lay that out in the last power. Yeah, no, there, I, we did a, a democracy summer reading list uh, episode of this show um, back in, in July. And we, and in the span of about two weeks, we read about 10 books on democracy, and they all started to run together after, uh, after a while. So you really need a breath of fresh air for all of us. I, um, I tried to do something. I was aware of those, you know. I, I, but I started on my, and some of those are wonderful books. I read them all. I have to in my profession, many written by friends of mine. But I, I, st I, I started writing a similar book 
over four years ago. And, you know, even before the others had come out, I thought, well, why don't I try to do this in a different way with a little bit more of a human touch? So, uh, so uh, my ambition was to take a different tack and uh, I'm glad to know you enjoyed it. Great. Um, so I've one, one final question here. Um, I know we're, we're coming up on our time to kind of bring things all back around to to uh, corruption, um, can you just expand a little bit more on why it's bad for democracy? Well, um, the uh, the idea of democracy uh, includes in it uh, a package of freedoms. Of course, the uh, most well known of those uh, is political freedom. Uh, that uh, one person, one vote. Um, and, but there are a set of other freedoms, and uh, corruption impinges both on political freedoms and all of the other ones in the package uh, that we call liberal democracy. You can see in America the way that, that this has worked, uh, where campaign contributions, of course, the wealthy corporations enabled by the Citizens United decision um, um, and lobbyists. Uh, uh, the, the special interests have more money to spread around than the average folks. So they have, in the past decades, been able to get more and more uh, power. They give more campaign contributions. They get people elected with the campaign contributions. Then they call in their favors. And sometimes this is legal corruption. Uh, It's allowed by the law. That's a big scandal. Sometimes it's illegal corruption. And this system is every uh, year, there's another story about a lobbyist who violated campaign finance law or a big donor who gave an illegal contribution uh, to a political official. Often, There's many stories like that in any given year. So the payback for those forms of legal and illegal corruption is a system that takes more and more wealth uh, away uh, from uh, an effort uh, towards equal uh, or a fair distribution, including uh, equality of opportunity. And then, like the Trump tax plan, gives disproportionate benefits to the donors, to the super rich who are make paying Ill, illegal or legal bribes uh, to their uh, favored candidates. It happens in both parties. There's been some asymmetry. It's happened more with the Republicans, in my view. And that's why you see things like this terrible uh, 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 Trump uh, GOP tax plan, which is accelerating our deficits, giving gross uh, excess to the super rich and uh, starving the rest of us. So uh, that's an example. I could go on and on. I probably got on too long. But that's an example of one of the ways that corruption um, corrodes democracy. Well, maybe we can have you back on and, and take take a deeper dive into into corruption sometime. Um, but for now, uh, thank you uh, for, for your time today, for the, the work that you're doing, and for this great book, which we'll make sure to, to link to in our show notes. Thank you. Thank you for your marvelous podcast and for those wonderful questions. 
Uh, and I look forward to uh, coming back on and filibustering some more. And when I join you again, I've described the problem of corruption. Maybe we'll talk about some of the solutions too, because they are coming. Yeah, we, we would welcome that. So uh, thank you again, Norm, for joining us today. Thanks so much. All right. So recently, we, we have spent a lot of time talking in, on this podcast uh, about authors and about issues that um, quite rightly um, are, are pretty negative. And the whole book review show. Yes. Right. And just about every one of them uh, um, spoke this, this feeling of dread. Right. But here is a, a, a man who, who um, knows just as much as any of those authors about um, why <laughs> there is good reason to be um, negative about the condition of our world today and pessimistic about the future of democracy. And yet he is um, and calls himself an eternal optimist. And I think it is worth reflecting. I mean, first of all, the man has standing to have whatever point of view he, he wants. And in this case, I often think it is a point of view that is respectable and worth our consideration. Well, and it speaks to the importance of having a long historical view of things. That's right. That things have been worse. Mm -hmm. And we can point to lots worse examples. America was more polarized. Uh, the world has been more violent. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are, there, are, there are things to point to uh, that if you look at things in that perspective, we're, we're, in, a, we're in an important period. Uh, but there's reason to be optimistic. And, and, and I would say that one of the, one of the things he points to, and, and you hear this from others too, uh, and this has been an interest in McCourtney and some of the polling it's done as well, is that the courts are whole. Mm -hmm. and, and that so long as so long as the courts as a as an institution are there, play their role, uh, protect democracy, then we're OK. Well, yeah. Or, or at least that we, we, we don't need to quite worry. So much. Well, I mean, I think he is he I, I've heard him say that, you know, the proper way to understand democracy is that it's always going to be something of a sine wave. Right. There's always going to be peaks and valleys. And. And there's always going to be reactions from illiberal, undemocratic elements within, you know, within every society and within human beings. And so um, once you know that to be so, once you once you understand that those things are always going to be there, um, it gives you a perspective with not only with respect to the present day, but also with respect to um what our task is, right? That that we're always kind of called on to to defend these these um, these dimensions of a democratic society, right? And he says, so long as there are friends of democracy willing to fight for it, then democracy will be okay, right? Well, or at least uh, look. I mean, I, maybe that's overstating. Well, a bit, but that but that it's important that there are people, organizations, institutions that are fighting for democracy. But I also think you're right in the sense that. He believes that there is something about democracy that um, makes it in, endure, that makes causes it to endure, and I think that is also something that I think we need to reflect on. I mean, his argument is that democracy endures because democracy is 
good and, and right and, and morally superior to other forms of government. You know, free exercise, free, free expression, um, uh, protection of minorities. These are not just different ways of organizing society. They're better ways. They're more human ways. And I think sometimes we lose track of that sense that, you know, what we are defending here is, is, um, it's just better. It's worth defending. It's worth sticking up for. Yes, but. Okay. All right. <laughs> there, there, now, there, remember, <laughs> folks, he's the optimist. There, 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 were, there were some things he said that, that gave me pause. You know, one is, one is how easily he's able to talk about, uh, in, in when Jenna asked him about corruption, mm-hmm. uh, to talk about our president in the same context of other authoritarian leaders pursuing basically the same strategy. I, I think that's right, but you yeah. just said that the courts are holding, and right. the courts are the proper um, mechanism for addressing this question. And you know, as he says, it's not going to happen, not going to turn on a dime. The other thing that gives me pause in what he was saying was when he was talking about how well we've been in these situations before, we come out of it, uh, we've been polarized before, like the Civil War, we were right. highly polarized. But then he also mentioned that social media, you know, has uh, is perhaps a tool. But we also know that social media has been really destructive to our democracy mm-hmm. in many ways. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think and that's not going away. That's not going away. But I think um, I'm reflecting back on on what uh, Matt Jordan said when he was on the, the podcast. Well, I'm also thinking about what Laura, Laura Rosenberger had to say about how uh, uh, authoritarian governments are using social media to fragment our democracy. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. But but Matt Jordan's um, perspective, like Norm Eisen's, was more historical. And his point was that, you know, technology creates these new forms of media and it takes a while for democratic society to um, learn how to um, adapt to them, to to take them into themselves and take it into democratic society. And, you know, is this going to be the one time where it doesn't do that? Man, I suppose that's possible. But it's also quite possible that like radio, like Penny Dailies, like television, um, like cable news, um, eventually uh, democratic society will catch up and, and, and democratic society will endure. So it was really quite interesting. And that was in response to Jenna's question about ambassadors. Mm-hmm. Because the, re- the reality is we do have many unfilled ambassadorships. It's not because the Senate's not fulfilling them. It's as Norm said, that, uh, that no names have been, been sent up. And, and I think it's, it's problematic that, that, we don't have, uh, that we don't have ambassadors in many places. Yeah, I think that's right. And, uh, that, that is right. And, and this really does infringe upon our ability to communicate to these governments what's important to the United States and to have the kind of channels that are set up through an ambassador uh, in, in a country. And what Norm would say is that, you know, the ambassador is an indispensable means by which United States preserves this Wilsonian ideal about democracy and about um, um, defending um, the institutions and the values that are, you know, commensurate with that. And that was, you know, under many administrations, that was a top priority mm-hmm, in the United mm-hmm, States to promote mm-hmm. democracy in some form or another, or at least to be speaking out against clear violations of democratic norms in other countries. Right. How foreign policy is being conducted. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. And, and at minimum, the, uh, um, 
one of the essential means by which uh, democracy is defended throughout the world is left empty, and that's not good for democracy. Yes, and maybe we should leave it right there. So kudos to uh, to Norm for this book and for for his his uh, his life spent defending democracy. Yes, and uh, thanks to to Jennifer, a nice interview with him as usual. Yep. All right. This has been Democracy Works. I'm Chris Beam. I'm Michael Berkman uh, from the McCourney Institute for Democracy. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Mm